Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Learning and Experiencing the Ways of God, Loving the Ways of God. And those are two distinct things. As you read through the books of the Bible, and especially the histories, we're in 2 Samuel now, you see a lot of learning and experiencing the ways of God. The child of God loves the ways of God. And we'll see some of that in this passage as well. The child of God loves the ways of God and then follows in those ways, whereas those who are only part of the visible church, those who name the name of God but do not actually know and love him, will often find themselves engaged in a conversation about the philosophical truths about God in which they agree. But when the actual rubber meets the road as the ways of God cross their path, They find themselves in opposition. And we're certainly going to see that this morning. In the song that we just sang, it said, Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. What we see in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel is anything but that by most people other than King David. What is happening is that everyone recognizes that Saul is dead. And David is very likely a strong candidate to be next king. And there's all kinds of jockeying for position. People trying to bring about what they want. And willing to do whatever manipulations and machinations and murder, if necessary, to bring it to pass. And how radically different that is from King David, who represents a type of Christ who has been for some time, and trusting himself to God all the time that King Saul was king and alive. But these others around him, not so. We're going to see today the murder of Abner by Joab. First-degree murder, not being killed in battle, but the first-degree murder of Abner by Joab. And we're going to see David's hatred of it. Joab thinks he's doing himself a favor and certainly thinks he's doing the king a favor But the king hates it. We're going to see more of this theme that we've seen already of faithfulness of God, of the loyalty and treason theme that runs through this book, and sowing and reaping over and over again. It's inescapable. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word as we turn in 2 Samuel chapter 3? 2 Samuel chapter 3. And we'll pick up at verse 20. This is after Abner has already agreed with David that he is going to bring all of Israel in agreement. 
to have David reign over the whole nation, all 12 tribes. And David and Abner have reached an agreement on this. Abner, you recall, was not only King Saul's uncle, but he was the commander of the armies under King Saul. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away. And he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he is already gone. You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the belly, so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord, forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or one who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruah, are too difficult for me. 
May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Will you pray with me, please? Our God and King, how desperately we need to learn these lessons. And in particular, that vengeance is yours, as you declare. That we can trust in your attentiveness, in your justice, in your power to bring to pass whatever needs to come to pass. God, that we would learn whatever situations are in our lives to see the wickedness and foolishness of manipulations and machinations and of a selfward life full of ambition. Holy Spirit, that you would come and write your law on our hearts as we do see the Lord Christ as second Adam holding all things out in the palm of his hand for the glory of his heavenly Father. We ask, God, that you would help us and that you would cause us now to learn what we must learn and to unlearn what we must unlearn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. These first several chapters, indeed much of Second Samuel here, as we saw in First Samuel with King Saul, is filled with people doing unrighteous things. Again and again, people are doing unrighteous thing, things, and they believe often that they are doing good. They're operating under a motto, you might say, that the ends justifies the means, and God knows nothing of that. God knows nothing of that. And King David, for the most part in his life, also understands that's not God's ways. King David has the opportunity twice to take the life of King Saul and refuses to do so, recognizing that if God wants King Saul to be removed, God has no shortage of ways of removing King Saul, even though King Saul has threatened his very life and truly tried to kill King David. But David is a man after God's own heart. Let me translate that for you. David is a Christian. David is one who loves God. David is one who, by the Holy Spirit, has a new heart. And he wants what God wants in the way God wants it. Some have described that as God's kingdom, God's way. And how many in the church today are foreign to the concept of God's kingdom, God's way. They know a little bit about God's kingdom, and they often want it my way. Or they know a lot about my kingdom, and they might want it God's way. But either of those is not God's kingdom, God's way. But David is earnestly desiring to hold all things in the palm of his hand. He is earnestly rejecting the machinations and manipulations of those around him. He is committing himself to his heavenly Father. And so should we as pilgrims in the pilgrim's path, regardless of what comes our way. In the passage here, we see early on in verse 22, that David and uh, the servants of David and Joab, meaning the soldiers of David and Joab leading them largely, came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. What does that mean? It means the Lord is blessing them and raining down blessings upon them. He's providing for their needs. So the passage in verse 22 begins with an underscoring that God is sovereign and he's bringing to pass what, what people need 
And we need to understand that as the Lord Christ says that we should consider the lilies of the field that they neither toil nor spin but that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of them. We need to entrust ourselves to God that God is present, God is attentive, God is powerful, God is good. And this is the beauty of knowing God's nature and character and of praying the Psalms. Psalm 121 says that he who watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. He's attentive, he's powerful, he's able. And David knows that. As we make our way through the passage this morning, verse 23 says, When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, Abner was here, and he has gone in peace. Maybe you notice it actually uses the word that he went in peace three times in just three sentences there. That Abner left in peace. And Joab doesn't like that. But but Joab here takes the time to lecture David. Listen to this again. Verse 23, the second half. Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king and he has sent him away and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Who is he addressing? He's addressing the king. Joab is addressing the king, and who is the king? But somebody who has demonstrated over and over again that he knows about warfare, that he knows about men, that he knows about God, that he knows about sovereignty and wisdom and fairness. And Joab is indeed rebuking him. But King David simply listens to him, believing that he's just wanting to vent and lets him go. Joab is failing to recognize the superior reality of David in warfare, wisdom, and a Godward life. A Godward life. We want to be looking for those people around us that are demonstrating a Godward life founded upon the Word of God and that they live through the vicissitudes of life, trusting in God in every situation. And King David is like that. Joab is not like that. So then we come to verses 26 and 27, and we see the actual murder here. He, Joab calls for Abner to come back, and Abner's under the impression that there's something further that David would want to speak with him about. Or maybe that King David has assigned Joab some administrative details about how this is going to work out, and that Joab and Abner are going to work these things out. But either way, Abner's under the impression that all is well. But in verse 26, it says, When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers. Verse 27, So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate, speak with him privately, and struck him in the belly, and he murdered him. Murder is defined both in the biblical terminology and in North Carolina law as plotting ahead of time. There are other forms of someone dying. We call it negligent homicide, when you didn't intend it at all, but your actions were just so wantonly negligent that it resulted in someone's death. And then we call it manslaughter, when you actually kill somebody, but you didn't plan it ahead of time. Maybe you got into a fight or something happened and, and on the spot, on the spur of the moment, something happened and someone died and you were directly responsible. But murder is when you planned it ahead of time, having plenty of time to seek wise counsel and to cool off. But Joab does not do that. The background here is chapter 2, verse 18. Turn back one page. Chapter 2, verse 18. The background here is that Joab has a brother Abishai who is still alive. And he had another brother named Asahel. And Asahel and the three and the th- three brothers were pursuing in a battle against King Abner, excuse me, Abner when he was serving with King Saul. It says in verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19, Asahel pursued Abner 
and did not turn to the right or to the left from following him. Now, there had been a, fa- a battle, and Abner was now withdrawing, and they were trying to bring peace to the end of this. But Asahel was very fast, and apparently he can keep up with Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? He recognizes him. And he says, I know who you are, and I'm not really afraid of you at all, but I do respect your brother, Joab, and I don't want to mess with you. I don't want to, get in, I don't want to offend Joab. That's what he's saying. And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left, and take hold of one of the young men for yourself, and take his spoil. If you're looking for a spoil or armor or something, you can get somebody else, but you're surely not going to get it from me. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? He's saying, I know Joab. And I know that if we get in a battle, you're going to lose Asahel. But Asahel is foolish. Very foolish. After two clear warnings from a very noble warrior. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear, the blunt end of the spear. He's trying to sort of knock the breath out of him, if you will, and put him back. But he hits him so hard, the spear goes all the way through him, even without the spearhead. So the spear came out of his back, and he fell there and died on the spot. That's the background. Joab and Abishai, the remaining brothers, and they believe that lawlessness is now the appropriate answer. They believe that they can now, for any reason, any, for this reason, they can now, without a ju- trial, without any hearing, take the life of Abner. And so that's what's taking place here. We see more machinations. Joab and his brother Abishai are doing, acting very foolishly here. The death of Asahel is from Abner in warfare after Abner twice tells him, turn back, this will end badly for you. I don't want to fight you. But Asahel refuses to do that. And so we see very distinct situations here, but either way, in both cases, and especially in the latter case here, Joab is without any pretense and protection of the law as he murders Abner at the gate. And David is shocked by this. Back in chapter 3, David is really stunned by this, clearly indicating he never intended that. Verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. He's aware that Abner has been a great warrior to King Saul, and he is wanting nothing to do with this. And so then in verse 29, he actually invokes a curse upon Joab and Joab's descendants as a result of this saying, I had nothing to do with it. And then again, in verses 38 and 39, he speaks of it. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruah, he means the two brothers that are still alive, Joab and Abishai, are too harsh for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. And there we see the reality of David coming to understand other passages that we've read before and wondered what would that look like. David is saying, look, God will settle this with Joab. God will settle this with Joab. It's what he's entrusting himself to do. He is invoking God. We need to do that regularly in our situations as they come up in our lives. What should Joab have done? He should have prayed. He should have asked God to bring vengeance if that's what was needed, if he thought that was right. Again, Joy was a little bit biased in this situation, not thinking altogether clearly, since it was the death of his younger brother. But the Bible 
teaches us that the church and individual Christians advance on their knees. And there's no indication here anywhere that Joab sought the will and the protection of God in this situation, but took matters into his own hand. What should Joab have done? He should have pursued Abner through legal channels. There were already set up here courts in Israel by this time. And he could have appealed to the king directly because Joab had the ear of King David. But why did he not appeal to King David? Probably because he didn't think King David would give the answer that he wanted. And many people fail to pursue godly counsel because they are afraid that they'll get good advice, but it's not the advice they want. At a trial, it would have been clear that Asahel's death was very, very different than a battle, uh, a death in warfare under normal circumstances. Uh, It would have come out some clarity, and there would have been some objective, wise counsel to deal with this, and that's what courts are for. But Joab didn't do it. What should Joab have done instead of this? He should have known his heart. Listen to that, brothers and sisters. Joab thinks he's doing a good thing by revenging his brother, avenging his brother to death. He should have known his own heart, though. Remember that passage from Jeremiah 17? We used to talk about it pretty regularly on Sunday evening. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's all of our hearts, but it's Joab's heart as well. Our objectivity is virtually lacking when we get passionate about certain things in various capacities. And here we see a classic example. Job takes matters in his own hands instead of seeking out the wise counsel of others. Look at your bulletin on the front of it is some remarkable passage there from on the very front. Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson here says that we need to be praying every day the Lord's Prayer. I mentioned to you before that Martin Luther said that he began every day and ended every day with the Lord's Prayer. And the idea is to pray through it slowly and plead with God as to what that might look like today in your life. Thomas Watson very clearly saying that we and Joab certainly should begin our day, and part of that prayer would be to stop and slowly ask God, deliver us from evil. And then Thomas Watson, in the way that the Puritan preachers often do, unpacks that in a fuller way than we might have initially thought. He says, in this petition, we pray to be delivered from the evil of our heart, and that it may not entice us to sin. Well, the reality is that's a a legitimate interpretation of that. It's also asking God to deliver us from the devil, but also from the evil of our heart. The heart is the poisoned fountain from whence all actual sins flow. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. The Lord Christ in Mark 7. The cause of all evil lies in man's own bosom. All sin begins at the heart. Lust is first conceived in the heart, and then it is born into the world. Whence comes rash anger, and that's exactly what takes place here. The heart sets the tongue on fire. The heart is the shop where all sin is contrived and hammered out. The heart is the greatest seducer. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The devil could not hurt us if our own hearts did not consent. That's a powerful phrase. The devil could not hurt us if our own hearts did not give consent. All that he can do is to lay the bait, but it is our fault to swallow it. How needful, therefore, is this prayer. Deliver us from the evil of our hearts. 
It was Augustine's prayer, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. And then he has this beautiful illustration. Beware of the bosom traitor, the flesh. The heart of man is the Trojan horse, out of which comes a whole army of lust. Oh, let us pray to be delivered from the lust and deceit of our own hearts. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And there we see the reality that Thomas Watson understands that daily we need to keep a close watch on our hearts. And it seems likely that Joab had not done that that morning as he entered into this. But what David is wanting to do and what we are to do is to let God be God. That very last verse in chapter 3, back in our text, 2 Samuel, the very last verse says, May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Well, perhaps you recognize that to some degree. It should strike a chord with you from Romans chapter 12. Sometimes when we read this passage in Romans 12, it doesn't seem to have the application that we need, and yet here is a perfect example of Joab taking matters into his own hands and making things very much worse. The passage is Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. Now again, this is talking about personal wrongs, someone who has wronged you personally. Chapter 12 of Romans, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And that's exactly what Joab is doing here. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In order to do that, you would have to be motivated and empowered supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. We see from this text in Second Samuel, and we see from our own lives, that left to ourselves, we could not do this. And we see also the need for King Jesus. We need to rest in His everlasting arms to understand that He is going to bring justice to every situation in our lives, past, present, and future. He will bring justice to every situation. And so we can pursue rightful administration of justice. And if we're not satisfied with that, we can bow before God in prayer and understand that he will do whatever is right now or eventually in these situations. What we see over and over again is sowing and reaping in the Bible. We see Joab sowing here chaos and he's going to reap it later in his life. And we see the reality here that we are to be Godward living. Sowing and reaping is a warning, if you will, in terms of sin, but it's also a blessing regarding righteousness. Sowing and reaping works both ways. To sin, it brings grave consequences. And to righteousness, it brings great fruit and peace. And in both cases, it always comes to pass. We think of Jesus and his Godward living as the second Adam in the 
wilderness temptation. He says he fasted 40 days, and after this he became hungry. And he is tempted by the devil to turn a stone into bread with the phrase, if you are the Son of God. But he does not. He entrusts himself to his Heavenly Father. He remembers that his Heavenly Father can bring him food, and he does not do it himself. And so we see a beautiful example of bowing before our Heavenly Father and committing ourselves to Him. Could we do that ourselves only by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit? The sowing and reaping theme continues in the life of Christ. The fruits of salvation will appear. He has accomplished salvation and the fruit will come forth. He has sown His own life. He has sown His own body in death on the cross and in the grave. And in the resurrection, we see the first fruits, and we'll see the rest of the fruits in salvation. We'll see them appear. We'll see them protected and nurtured. We'll see them harvested. The sowing and reaping of the gospel will bring to pass what God intends for it. And we see that all through the Bible. And then we see the reality in the scriptures of sowing and reaping in the lives of men. As we read these passages in 2 Samuel 3, before and after, We need to apply this to ourselves and think where in our own situation are we involved in manipulations and machinations. We need to be exceedingly cautious about what we're involved in. We need to be careful that we appeal to God and that God's glory and will be done and that we ourselves conduct ourselves as children of light in all that we do. There needs to be awareness as well of sowing and reaping in regard to our tongue. This is one of the certainly one of the most significant areas in which we do have sowing and reaping so clearly in our lives over and over again. And we'll see that in the book of 2 Samuel. In James chapter 3, we're reminded of this reality that it is a grave danger. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, says this For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. And then he talks about this idea of sowing and reaping with our tongue. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. And so we want to take heed to that reality there and in other places of learning this theme that we're going to see in this book of sowing and reaping. But in David, back in our text, there is the shining forth of righteousness. Again, David is being compared here to Joab in the same way as he was previously compared to King Saul. In chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, In verse 31, we read this. It says, Then David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier, the funeral procession, 
Thus they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And it makes it very clear. And then verse 35, Then all the people came to persuade David to eat. And while it was still day, but David vowed, saying, No, he's not going to. Verse 36, Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. We see his righteousness shining forth. The Lord Christ says, Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They see how David is very beset by this and how radically that is different from Joab who brought it to pass. Well, again, in your bulletin, underneath the title of the sermon, there is a quote there. I'm sorry, it's on the back page, very last page. There's a quote from Samuel Bringle. Samuel Bringle was a Methodist minister at the turn of the century. And he heard the gospel being preached by a Salvation Army preacher. And he abandoned the Methodist church and became a Salvation Army preacher as a result. But he uh, did quite a few sermons that were recorded and written down. But here's what Samuel Logan says. This is as he's already been ordained as a minister for years. I saw the humility of Jesus and my pride. The meekness of Jesus and my temper. The lowliness of Jesus and my ambition. The purity of Jesus and my unclean heart. The faithfulness of Jesus and the deceitfulness of my heart. The unselfishness of Jesus and my selfishness. The trust and faith of Jesus and my doubts and unbelief. The holiness of Jesus and my unholiness. I got my eyes off everybody but Jesus and myself. And I came to loathe myself. We see a beautiful transformation here as he becomes Godward. Previously he had been very selfward and then he became very Godward. And that's what we see in the lives of Joab and of David. David is very Godward. And we see the Christ likeness of David in this. Over and over again, we are exhorted to learn the nature of who God is. When we learn the nature of God, including his justice and his goodness and his mercy and his power and his attentiveness, then we can believe the Romans 12 passage that he will bring justice for every situation. And therefore, we need not be involved in machinations and manipulations. We need not be involved in anything that is ungodly or inappropriate. And so we can trust and rest in his everlasting arms as we preach to ourselves the nature and attributes of God. As we preach to ourselves the nature and attributes of God. This is, in fact, what the Lord Christ is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And he concludes, after having preached about the very nature of who God is, he concludes in chapter 7 of Matthew saying this, He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And we see the life of David very differently than the life of King Saul or Joab. Everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to read through this passage this afternoon and the coming week as we continue in Second Samuel and be looking for these themes of loyalty and treason, of sowing and reaping, and then to be pleading with the Holy Spirit as to what application that might be in our own lives as we entrust ourselves to the Heavenly Father for Him to do whatever is needful in our situation. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise you in your attentiveness, in your faithfulness, in your justice and goodness and truth, in your holiness, in your mercy. God, I pray that you would bless us, Holy Spirit, each one, that we might be able to make application of this in the various concerns of our life that we would see not only in David, but especially in the Lord Christ, the entrusting of themselves to you, that at all times they are about your business, looking for you to be glorified, knowing that nothing is too difficult for you. God, I pray for any person here that is concerned about the circumstances of their life, that they would have a confidence that you see and know and care for them, that you do hear our prayers and do respond. We pray, God, that you would allow us and strengthen us, Holy Spirit, to walk as children of light, that we would adorn the gospel by our serenity and confidence in any situation. God, that we would come to know that while we might make plans and seek to do good and noble things, that the outcome is from you. And that we would look to that with a confidence that you're causing all things to work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We ask God that you would help us to walk in this manner, praying without ceasing, And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And now, if you'll stand, we'll have the blessing for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reformed Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see. Come and see.